You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. What does it take to be an entrepreneur and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the PropG Podcast and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the Future of Entrepreneurship, a PropG Pod special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the PropG Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. For the past month, Iraq has been racked by protests, and they aren't protests against the United States or its involvement in their country or some kind of oil meddling. They're protests against their own government and against Iranian involvement in Iraq. Today on Worldly, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network, we are going to get into these protests. We're going to understand why they're happening, what they mean, and connect them to some other protest movements that are going on across the Middle East. I'm Zach Beecham, here as always with Jen Williams and Alex Ward. Hey. Good morning. Good morning to you, too, as well. Um, I guess we should probably start out by talking about when these protests erupted, because it was in early October, right, Jen? Yeah, so they kind of actually started a little bit earlier than that during the the late summer. Um, We're kind of percolating. Um, But they really kicked off in early October. And basically... They're protesting over two kind of things. It started out with protests against a lack of basic services, so things like uh, electricity, lack of water. um, And this is something that actually happens pretty regularly every summer in parts of Iraq. Um, I've written about it on the site before. Which parts specifically? In Basra in particular. It's one of the cities in Iraq. Right. So Basra is is a southern city in in Iraq, and it's heavily Shia populated. Right. So, but in general, these protests typically are against the corruption in the government. So we can get into a little bit about why, but basically the way the government is set up makes it to where the ministries that handle basic services, electricity, water, things like that, are basically run as kind of personal fiefdoms by corrupt politicians. So these protests kind of started that way. But then they kind of morphed into something else. And uh, basically, the the Iraqi security forces, the Iraqi government decided to crack down really hardcore on these protesters, uh, fired on them, tear gas, things like that. And that really took it to the next level. And people got really tired of what was going on and started protesting against the government more broadly. And then Iran kind of intervened and the protests morphed again and turned into basically anti-Iran protests. Which is which was a. A change, right? Because at the start of it, in early October, especially Iranian-backed politicians and and Iranian militias and even some Iranian government officials were kind of quiet about what was going on, maybe in hopes that it could kind of all blow over. But then the fact that they got involved turned this into a pretty anti-Iranian popular movement. 
And it seems, uh, and I'm sure we'll go more into detail, but as, as someone who does not follow the Middle East that closely uh, in terms of its, its political movements, I follow what our troops do there. Uh, but in terms of political movements, uh, it seems like this is a pretty big discussion about, especially since it's led by young people, about what kind of country they want to have. Uh, after the government really changed in 2003, what a euphemism for the United States invading and toppling their government. I just didn't the want gov- to get... The government changed. Yeah, the government changed. Okay. Like, a bit, yeah. Some, a bit. Somebody did it. Some some people did something. Some things happened. Uh, hand wave, there was a war. Uh, <laughs> no, but like, okay, so it's been 16 years, right? And, and a bunch of people now are kind of hoping for, okay, well, we have a d- democratic system in, in name, these services should be getting better. I have a college degree. I want a job. And yet you've got really high unemployment, especially among youthful populations. You've got a, a neighboring country exerting tons of influence. And you see that your ability to get your trash picked up and your and water to come out of your faucet and all these kinds of things, none of this is being provided. And so while there are always these questions of sectarianism and ethnicities and whatever when it comes to Iraq, in this case, it really does seem to be about a bigger discussion about what kind of country is Iraq now, and it's being led by its disaffected youth. Right. Um, so Iraq is a really complicated country with a lot of different cross-cutting uh, political incentives and ideologies and movements and ideas. Um, and I think to understand uh, what's going on right now, you need to understand a little bit more the degree to which Iran has influence in Iraq and the mechanisms through which it exerts influence. Uh, since the 2003 U.S. invasion, uh, Iran has gotten a lot more involved in Iraqi politics, in part, not entirely, but in part, because Iraq is a Shia-majority country and Iran is its neighbor and also a Shia-dominated country. And so there's been a degree of sectarian alignment. Um, and Iran also played a really important role in the fight against ISIS in Iraq through these proxy militias that it had built up first after the invasion and used to kill American troops and the U.S.-backed government, and then more recently activated to fight ISIS uh, starting around 2014. Now, it's also the case, to make this more complicated, that these militias have political arms. They aren't just random people running around fighting, but they control various different Iraqi ministries and have portfolios in the cabinet and so on, and so they play a really big role in Iraqi politics. So it's difficult to disentangle the issues with corruption and government malfeasance from the issues of Iranian domination because some of the people who are doing the corrupt stuff are in fact Iranian proxies and Iranian allies. Right, I mean, the militias themselves are not particularly like, they're somewhat separate. Um, It's actually really complicated because some of these militias are ostensibly aligned with Iran, but they're not all backed by Iran. They're not all actually pro-Iran. A lot of them are. It's a lot more complicated than that. Um, a lot of them are aligned more with their own domestic kind of nationalist Shia movement. And a lot of this goes back. I think it, it actually makes sense to go even farther back um, and go back to the Iraq war. So when the U.S. came in and you know toppled the government and tried to set something different up, Um, Previously, the government of Saddam Hussein uh, had been predominantly Sunni-controlled government. He was a nationalist but was Sunni, and the Sunnis were generally in charge of things. When the U.S. came in, they basically flipped that. They put 
Shia much more in charge. Uh, they set up the government to where there would be a power sharing arrangement essentially among the different kind of factions and sectarian groups. So there were Kurds, there were Sunni, there were Shia. Um, but, you know, the, the leadership was heavily Shia. And, and to be fair, that that is the majority of the country, as, as we said a little bit ago, right? Like that's right. democratically responsive right. to what Iraqis, the Iraqi population actually is. Right. Um, but it's it's not, you know, like a thousand to one. Like it's, right. it, it's very uh, kind of mixed in Iraq and it depends on where you go and, and what parts, right? So that's actually how Iran kind of got in the door is that, you know, by making this kind of majority Shia kind of government, uh, Iran was kind of a natural ally as a Shia you know, government that is basically run on principles of being a Shia government. So that kind of opened the door and Iran was able to make inroads that it hadn't for decades before. Um, and then you also had, you know, the sectarian fighting that kind of resulted, right? That's where ISIS kind of in part came from and, and Al-Qaeda in Iraq and these like Sunni groups that were like, wait a second, we used to have power. What's going on? They were fighting back. That's where you got into the Iraqi civil war and kind of all of that that happened um, post-invasion. So now you have the U.S. is mostly gone from Iraq. We're still there in some degree, but nowhere near the way we were in the occupation of Iraq. And Iran is still there. And these militias that are, you know, they're domestic militias, but a lot of them have varying degrees of ties to Iran. And then you have Iran actually sending its own commanders. And that's where you actually bring it back to these protests. So, you know, when it was just kind of regular anti-government protests, there were still big protests, but... Um, the protesters and and a, a prominent Shia leader actually in Iraq had called on the government to basically call new elections and step down. Um, they wanted, you know, a no confidence vote for Prime Minister Adel Abdel Mahdi. And that was like something the protesters wanted. Right. Kalamazoo. But then Iran sent Qasem Soleimani to Baghdad to Who's basically that? <laughs> shut that down. So Qasem Soleimani is the head of the IRGC, the Iranian, the uh, the IRGC's Quds, Quds Force. So the Iranian Revolutionary Guards Corps is the kind of quasi-official military of Iran that's meant to kind of guard the revolution and the Shia revolution and, and kind of guard the the Islamic Republic of Iran. They're the ones that basically do all the meddling uh, around so It's like a mix of a military East. and an intelligence service. Kind of, yeah. And they also run parts of the, the Iranian economy. But so Qasem Soleimani is the head of this Quds Force, basically the special forces who go around and like train and recruit and fund and help guide, <laughs> using that in air quotes, um, these militias. So they send Qasem Soleimani directly to Baghdad to straight up intervene and stop this no confidence vote that would basically bring down Adil Abdul Mahdi, the, the prime minister. Um, and that was like, hell no. People were like, well, wait a second, you're literally sending this like special forces commander to interfere directly in our government? No, thank you. And that really set off a lot of people. Yeah, I just want to put a fine point on that. I mean, if you knew nothing about the situation, right, there's a very key point in that, which is a foreign country helped your country set up its government, right? If you're an American and all of a sudden you saw like Justin Trudeau's envoy came to Washington and like helped set up an administration be like, what is Canada doing here? Uh, right? There's notorious Canadian meddlers. Yeah, like, and I, and I know that's that's not exactly the same. It's not even close to the same situation. But but it's just to make a point is like if now and on top of that now you are someone who's struggling just to you know, make ends meet. You're struggling to create a future, and then you're seeing your government being kind of run or at least brokered by 
a foreign government and there's a party that's like, wait, what's going on here? Something is odd. Uh, and so there is a bit of a sovereignty issue. There's a corruption issue. There's an influence issue. There's just a lot going on here. But I just want to just to put a fine point on that. Like this is if you are looking at the situation, you're going part of this is about my country is not just my country. It's, I don't have the sovereignty that I want. Exactly. Yeah. And, and this this I think is what that point, Alex, is what makes this um, so interesting from a, like analytic understanding what's going on in Iraq point of view. Because like when you turn on the TV or something like that, mostly and you hear someone talking about Iraq, since the U.S. invasion, it's largely been discussed in sectarian terms. Sunni versus Shia and then maybe the Kurds, another ethnic minority, get brought in, right? And it's just like a mishmash of different groups. But Iraq is also a country with a very specific national history and a sense of identity, even though it's a country that hasn't existed in historical terms for that long. Iraqis do have a deep sense of <laughs> well, national pride. I mean, I would maybe not say that. It, it, that's, Nineveh's in the fucking Bible, so. No, as a, as in terms of national borders, right? They're, the national borders and the nation-state identity of Iraq is a relatively modern construction. Sure. It is. <laughs> I mean, Peace okay. of Westphalia was 1648. Yeah. Like, <laughs> more yeah, modern than that. That's pretty modern. Yeah. Um, but right. look, the point is the, the Iraqi sense of, of national identity in the way that we talk about nationhood today is quite powerful. Uh, and especially when it comes to Iran, you've seen Iran described as well, it's the natural ally of the Shia. But in fact, everyone in Iraq remembers that Iraq and Iran fought this really, really big war. Uh, not so long ago. And the Iran-Iraq war has set Iran essentially as a, a meddler in Iraqi politics for a long time and made them seen as an enemy. People, you know, killed our family members and so on. And so Iran may very well have overstepped by trying to exert this much influence, especially this much direct influence inside Iraq and set off a nationalist get out, we don't want you here kind of response, especially given how much money uh, militias that they've backed or are perceived as aligned with them or political leaders that are aligned with them have siphoned off from the government, right? Like these nationalism and corruption have fused together into this giant bill of goods against the current way that the government operates. Just a quick question uh, along these lines. These protests that have popped up, are they mostly in Shia-dominated areas? Are they in Sunni-dominated areas? Are, like, are they all over the place? Like, I guess I'm wondering if there's a special characteristic, other than, of course, that it's led by, by the youth. Is there like a, a specific sort of ethnic or, or, whatever, or sectarian uh, way these protests have popped up? So not anymore. Basically, this, if you talk to Iraqis uh, who are following this really closely, and including people who are on the ground in Iraq, um, a lot of what they're talking about is how this is actually in a kind of surprising and in a lot of ways positive for a lot of people who are, you know, sick of the sectarian fighting in their own country. If you actually go back to, you know, earlier eras of Iraq, sectarian like Sunni and Shia lived alongside each other just fine. Uh, you know, Sunnis married Shia, intermarried families were connected. It's not this like divide that we kind of try to, you know, impose and that we saw in the in the wake of 2003. But it's really kind of brought Sunni and Shia together um, and also Yazidis uh, who were that, you know, kind of small minority uh, who were targeted for genocide by ISIS. You've seen basically kind of all sectors of, you know, and all sects of Iraqi society kind of come together in this kind of nationalist push, which is really tremendous to see. And going back to the Iranian meddling point. You know, it wasn't just that there's this like longstanding Iran involvement. And it wasn't even really just uh, Qasem Soleimani. It's also the way they've handled the protests ever since, right? So they've basically ordered a lot of their militias 
you know, the Iraqi militias that they back and that they assert some degree of control over to try to put down these protests, right? It's a very direct thing. They're like, no, go push back, you know, and they're firing on protesters. And haven't so, over 200 been killed or something like, two, like that? 250 or something like that, yeah. yeah. And, yeah and, and many more injured. Yeah, uh, yeah. Hundreds, if not thousands, injured, uh, hundreds killed. And, um, you know, we're seeing, you know, really gruesome injuries. Uh, so they're using these, uh, I think Human Rights Watch, it was, um, had this report that they're using these tear gas grenades that are actually causing these, like, really horrific uh, injuries. Um, so it's really bloody and it's really brutal. But you still have Iraqis coming out in the streets. Again, Sunni, Shia, Yazidi, like, all of people, all of these people who have, you know, in the past decade or two, you know, been fighting amongst each other are now coming together. And it doesn't mean that those divisions are gone, right? That's not what any of this means. But it means that, you know, at a certain point when there are eternal divisions, but you are then presented with, you know, an outside actor who is actively meddling in your country. And it'd be one thing if Iran were meddling and things were going great, but they're not, right? Things are not going well in Iraq. And so at a certain point, they're like, look, you know, we all just want to work together to get you know, this influence out and take back control of our country. And it doesn't mean that Iran's going to get out of the country entirely. That, like, they're way too enmeshed at this point for that to happen in any kind of significant way overnight. But it is the sense that people are like, no, we want, you know, a change in the entire structure of the government. And the president, Barham Saleh, has come out and said that, you know, we're going to make some changes to the election laws. We're going to change that. But the protesters are not satisfied. Um, and in part, it's because of these militias that are still continuing to try to put down this fight rather than, you know, if Iran had played it better, they could have said, yeah, like, we'll have these militias support this uprising. Um, you know, we'll try to come on the side of the protesters. And so they played it really badly. Uh, and that's why we're in the situation we're in now. Right. Um, shooting protesters is not what you're supposed to do in a democracy. What? And yeah, I know. Right. Surprise. Huh. And uh, that that's the other interesting thing about this. Right. Like, despite all of Iraq's problems, it is a democracy. It is a democratic system of governance. Uh, people get elected. They win. They have to be responsive to the voters to a degree. And since 2003, you know, after some pretty brutal periods of civil war, uh, Iraqis have been pretty invested in their country remaining a democratic state. And so when people come out and protest in these large numbers, it is about corruption. It is about Iran. It's also about the maintenance of a responsive democratic political system. It's about young Iraqis saying, we still want a voice in our country, and it's our country, and we want to talk about it. We, we, we care, and it matters. So it's this whole mess of things. And honestly, I don't, I don't have a good sense of how this shakes out. It's a really... Strong protest movement, I think, judging by the amount of people that have turned out, the cross-ethnic and sectarian divisions that Jen was talking about a second ago. Uh, it's, it seems like it's exerting a great deal of pressure on the government. So I think one to you know put a, a really fine point on on just how remarkable this is. Just this week, we saw a group of protesters, massive groups of protesters, attacking the Iranian consulate in Karbala. Now, for people who aren't familiar with Karbala, it is the one of the holiest places in Shia Islam. Uh, it is basically has this huge outsized uh, role in the martyrdom of early leaders that shaped Shia Islam, uh, especially Shia militias. But also, you know, when Shia go for this annual pilgrimage to Karbala, um, there's a there's a phrase, you know, every day is Ashura, every place is Karbala, um, and Ashura is that that holy holiday that celebrates uh, the martyrdom. But Every place is Karbala. And by that, they mean that, like, 
the, the center of Karbala is this heart of Shia Islam, and they always think about Karbala, always think about the martyrdom, always think about the foundation of Shia Islam. So the fact that the Iranian consulate in Karbala was attacked by not sectarian protesters, but by protesters both Sunni and Shia, is staggering. That you would ever see that happen is really just a sign of, of how much has changed in Iraq and how much of a nationalist movement and anti-Iran this has really become. Which I'll, I'll just put on my usual cynic hat, which is at, at which point, like, I don't know how the, the protesters get satisfied, right? Because you are – it seems like just the scale of it, what they're asking for, basically a change in the entire way the government works. Give me – you know, ch- improve my life from the get-go. Get Iran out as much as possible. Like, these are massive requests, not unreasonable, by the way, but still massive requests that require – years to do. And so th- if that's the kind of unrest that we're seeing now, and they're unlikely to be satisfied soon, so this could only get worse. Right. No, there's one interesting specific point on that, that a, a demand and even a push by the government had been to change the system of voting. So instead in Iraq currently, you vote for party lists, right? You just vote for X party. Right. Uh, they wanted to be able to vote for individual politicians. The idea would be to break the power of these different corrupt blocks and so on and allow you to vote for individual leaders that you thought might be less corrupt rather than empowering entire groups. But the government, at least the leadership, had been at least interested in doing that. The problem is that for a lot of politicians, this means they would lose their jobs. And so the reform seems to be stalled out, at least from what I've read, in the Iraqi parliament, which – is indicative, at least to my mind, of the degree to which it's difficult to implement the kind of sweeping reforms the protesters want. It's also not even that they would lose their jobs. It's that they would lose their largesse uh, that they use to actually stay in power. And it's a whole group of people who would lose power. So, you know, when I was talking earlier about the corruption and and the basic services, the way the Iraqi government is set up is that basically, like, according to how many seats that you get in parliament, you are then accorded – which – in and of itself is kind of drawn along sectarian lines, um, you are accorded certain ministries. So it's not like, you know, the central government, like in the U.S., like the, the cabinet, the executive branch basically controls the agencies, right? And the, the president appoints different, you know, cabinet ministers, essentially secretaries to control you know, the State Department and the Department of Energy, et cetera. Um, that's not how it works in Iraq. It, it's more kind of if you win a certain amount of seats, you get X amount of ministries. And the way that then becomes is that these politicians will – who are not qualified for the most part to run these bureaucracies, to run you know, the Department of, of Energy, to run these ministries that control things like water and electricity uh, and infrastructure – they then use that to kind of uh, as patronage networks. They they basically you know if they want uh, support in their you know their village, their hometown, their home region, they will then take you know important leaders and and staff up with political cronies essentially, which is the opposite of how you would want you want people who are qualified to run an electric company, you know, or run a water system or build infrastructure to be the ones who are running these organizations. But that's not how it works. And so changing that you know to Alex's point is really difficult because you have all these people who stand to lose a lot of money and a lot of lucrative positions. Uh, and that's really hard to change. So uh, with that tale of an unstoppable force meeting an immovable object, um, we're going to take a break and talk about how this isn't just this very hyper granular Iraqi situation, but part of a broader wave of protests in the Middle East and the extent to which we can talk about these as being a unified wave or separate, different 
individual events. And during the break, Jen and I will yell about our competing theories of Iraqi nationalism, and then we'll come (laughs) back to you guys. Vacations can be tricky. You already know how to book flights and hotels, but now the only thing you're missing is, you know, the actual travel experience. Because is it really a vacation if you're just sitting around like you would at home? You need a tool to get the most out of your time away. That's where Viator steps in. You can book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. What does it take to be an entrepreneur and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the future of entrepreneurship of Prop G Pod, special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, welcome back. Uh, we are talking about uh, protests in the Middle East. We spent the first half talking about Iraq. And just so you know, listeners, Jen and I did talk about nationalism during the break and we came to a detente. Now we're going to talk about other countries outside of Iraq, specifically Lebanon and Egypt. Uh, I want to start with the first one, Lebanon, because it's it's much more similar to the Iraqi case than Egypt is. Yeah. So you're also seeing protests in Lebanon. They are similar to the ones in Iraq in some sense, in the sense in particular of having to do with Iran. So Iran, through its proxy Hezbollah, is has been for a very long time heavily involved in Lebanese politics. So Hezbollah is uh, an armed military organization slash terrorist organization that is also a political organization. It's what is known in political science as uh, a hybrid organization. Uh, shout out to my friend Lauren who's doing her PhD Ooh. on this. But um, but basically it's a hybrid kind of military terrorist organization, but it also is a political movement that is involved directly in the Lebanese government. And, and they are a proxy of Iran in the sense that Iran funds them and and arms them and trains them, and they are very closely connected. Uh, arguably, you know, more to some degree than some of the militias in Iraq, not all. But these protests in Lebanon, we've seen kind of protests break out uh, sporadically kind of in the past, you know, several years in Lebanon over, again, similar issues like basic services. This one started over a very small uh, tax on the use of WhatsApp, the encrypted messaging system. So the government proposed this this tax, just I think a few cents, um, and people were just pissed. They were like, no, you know, this is out of control. 
you know, this is just more kind of piling on, you know, money that people don't have. The economy in Lebanon is not doing very well. Um, again, basic services. We've seen protests over trash pickup. So basically, like the basic trash system doesn't even work in, in Beirut. So people are piling up garbage in the streets. Um, again, lack of economic opportunities. And the, the economy just really sucks in Lebanon right now. And so people are mad at the government, which in part includes Hezbollah, which in part then goes back to Iranian influence. Um, but this is much more, you know, I think about domestic kind of issues related to, you know, the lack of the government's inability to basically function. Lebanon has for a long time had issues with functioning government. Um, they fought a very long, bloody, horrific civil war. Um, they are also a very kind of divided country in terms of religion and sects and things like that. And so, you know, you're also seeing these big protests kind of come out. And then in somewhat of a similar way in Iraq, Hezbollah then came out and sent basically thugs out into the streets to start fighting with protesters and injuring and killing protesters. So, again, you have this kind of Iranian-backed group that's trying to crack down on protests. Now, Hezbollah is almost certainly probably not doing this at the orders of Iran, right? Hezbollah is part of the government in Lebanon. So they are not, you know, taking orders from Iran necessarily. They are handling things the way they govern their own country. Um, but people are pissed and people are really tired of it. All right. So I got three points off of that. One, uh, I find that American audiences typically do not understand the importance of WhatsApp. That's really true, actually, because like, Americans don't use it in the way that other people in other countries do on the right. Right. So, So one, the importance of WhatsApp. I know for a fact that at least in Europe, like if you take just calling regularly, you have to cut off a finger and like sell it to someone in order to make that call. It's just so expensive. It's why everyone texts. When WhatsApp came out, that's huge because it's free calling. It's free texting. And so I'm assuming the, the rates in the Middle East are probably higher than they are in Europe, or at least it's harder to, to make that communications. But it's encrypted, which is actually extra I was important. Gonna, and I was going to get to that next, which is – and on top of that, it's encrypted, which helps – keep your conversations uh, away from from Snoopy governments. So even a, a little tax is incredibly it, – it, it shows a massive gap between the youth that typically uses it and old, you know, out-of-touch government leaders. But it, it does it, – it is a bigger infringement upon not just communications and money but, but freedom for many people. So I just wanted to put out why WhatsApp – like, okay, so a tax on WhatsApp, whatever. That No, this is actually super important. Two, just to put a fine point on it, it does seem like there is an uprising of my government sucks and I wanted to do better, uh, which is encouraging to see regardless of where it is. Uh, it's great that this is happening and that this sort of idea is spreading, although let's hope this all works out. And then three, this is not an American story, but there is an American part to play in that we are, as we you all may remember, fans of the show know, uh, there's a maximum pressure campaign against Iran that the Trump administration has placed, and it's put immense economic strain on the country. Uh, I'm going to use these numbers in a future piece on the site, so look out for them. But for right now, they will be a worldly exclusive. Uh, I obtained State Department economic figures on the kind of pressure that we are putting on Iran. They currently say, and you can take them with grains of salt, but that basically uh, Iran will contract by about 14 percent uh, by the end of the year, uh, that we have cut off about 2 million barrels of oil per day of Iran's exports, and on and on and on. And so 
in the case of are we actually hurting Iran's economy, it is working. So what is Iran doing in order to maintain influence throughout the region? Well, it's trying to consolidate its power in countries and where it has influence, Iraq, Lebanon, and elsewhere. So this is actually kind of for these protests to be rising up now is actually super bad for Iran because that's its only real lever of influence in the region. And to see that there are quite literally anti-Iran protests in Iraq, its neighbor, and then in Lebanon where it has a very prominent proxy, this only makes that effort harder. And the happiest people seeing this outside of the protesters themselves are definitely in Washington. I just want to add on the Lebanon thing before we go to, to Egypt. Um, just kind of similarly talking to the end of, of the Iraq segment, you know, the question of how much can change and will things change? You know, the the prime minister Saad Hariri did step down. He announced kind of dramatically basically saying this is a paraphrase, but um, I basically it's, it's past time. It's time to step down. We need a, a, a shock to the system, meaning my stepping down in order to get things to change. So, you know, to his credit, I guess he did step down. Um, the protesters are not satisfied yet. They were celebrating in the streets. They were very happy about this, this you know, development. But that's not all they want. They want more. They want better change. Uh, they want more change. And so those protests are continuing as we speak. Um, it's also worth noting that, like in the Iraq case, these are just like absolutely huge protests. So I want to read something from the National uh, Middle East Space publication uh, writing in mid-October. Uh, and they say, a group of activists trying to map the scale of the four days of growing rallies by locating social media posts and reports from the ground shows the scale. These are nationwide in almost every town, city and village. Highways across the country are closed. Right. These are these are really serious, really big deal protests. Just incredible. Yeah. Um, now, as similar as those are to the Iraqi protests, I, I want to go now to Egypt very briefly because the situation there is a, is a little bit different. Uh, what's happening in Egypt seems to be. Uh, largely an extension of 2011 protests that kind of never really stopped to degree like they did. They were repressed by the state. But ultimately, this is about authoritarianism, whereas in Lebanon and Iraq, there are electoral systems and people are angry with with service provision. In Egypt, there's a military government that has essentially overthrown the Arab Spring Revolution and return to the status quo prior to 2011 with a new and even more repressive leader uh, who a lot of politicians in the U.S. weirdly really like. And so these this round of protests is more about authoritarian rule than it is service provision, though obviously it's difficult to disconnect those two. Yeah, I mean, let's be clear here. The whole point of uh, the Arab Spring, which was born out of uh, Cairo's Tahrir Square, was really to changed the style of governance in the country, and then it grew into into a change in the style of, of governance throughout the region. And the fact that they lost so far, right? Uh, I mean, we ha there has been one success story, really, in Tunisia. Um, other than that, we've seen, you know, Bashar al-Assad is, is is, has won the Syrian civil war. We see uh, Sisi in power, the head of this military government in Egypt. We're seeing authoritarianism everywhere, but in Egypt particularly, like, the revolution, there has been groundswells of, mo of movement forever. Like, the fact that CC's in power does, did not mean that the m thousands of protesters and, 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 and grassroots workers stopped. And the second things go bad, they, there is an infrastructure there to come back and keep pushing and keep trying to depose. Now, this is going to be somewhat harder because you know, CC also leads the military, and 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 he is has shown his ruthlessness before. And and whereas Mubarak last time, Hosni Mubarak, who 
did step down under pressure, like CC seems to be a lot more ruthless than that. And and it, I have trouble believing that he could step down. So good luck on those protests. But this seems to be more as like this will sound negative. I don't mean it to be a a straggling long-term effort more so than sort of a pop-up of my government sucks and I want to do better. This is part of a, a broader wave of I want the style of governance in my country to change. Right. So when Hosni Mubarak was deposed, when he stepped down with massive protests in the Arab Spring, um, they then held democratic elections that were basically free and fair elections. There were there were problems, of course, but they were democratic elections. And Mohamed Morsi, who was the Muslim Brotherhood's candidate, was elected. He lasted a year. Uh, he did a horrible job by all accounts, even his supporters, um, with basically managing the economy. And so, you know, when Sisi kind of launched a military coup and took back over, a lot of people did support him, including protesters who had, you know, been very active in the Arab Spring, but it, particularly some older people as well, who were like, look, you know, our country has been racked for, you know, two years now with protests, with unrest. Like, this will at least bring back some stability. Let's give this guy a chance. Uh, and so there was a bit of that um, with people kind of not coming out in the streets as much anymore. And then CC began to basically become Mubarak 2.0 and crack down hardcore. And that has continued and continued and continued because, you know, I was mentioning this to you guys the other day. You know, one of the issues with when you topple a leader is that you essentially see that leaders can be toppled, right? And so it's kind of like, well, we brought that last guy down. We could probably bring this guy down too. And so what that means for CC is that he has to continue to become more repressive and more repressive. And we're seeing that. And that's thereby also generating more and more protests. So he's rounding up, you know, children and students and journalists and cracking down harder and harder, exerting more control, even foreign journalists, foreign press who used to be able to operate with some degree of at least safety that you wouldn't be arrested and thrown into a jail and never heard from again. Um, it's getting really, really, really bad in Egypt and people are sick of it. And on top of that, things are not getting better economically, right? It's kind of a, a similar story. And so they're like, look, we're tired of this. We're going to go back out to the street. But again, CC is responding in the only way that CC knows how to respond, which is by, by firing on protesters, by rounding people up, right? Like it's the same violence. Um, and so you know, the protests in Egypt, I don't know if they're going to continue. Um, the, the degree of repression is astounding. Uh, I, I said this the other day. I never thought I would see a, a regime in Egypt more repressive than Mubarak's. And yet here we are. Um, so, you know, in that case, it is very much, you know, the kind of democratic uprising versus a really brutal insanely intensely repressive government that has a lot of power and particularly military power. And I also want to note that as country specific as these protests are, as much as they are linked to conditions there and problems there that are not the same as they are in other places, uh, there's a well-known finding in the research on democratic transitions and protests that when you see especially a successful protest in one country, other countries regionally specifically autocracies, uh, also tend to see protests. It is the case that one movement inspires others nearby to keep acting. So there can be kind of a self-reinforcing effect when it comes to protest movement that people see headlines about other people going out and doing something impressive and they want to go out in their country. So while I don't know if I want to call this Arab Spring 2.0, I think it's way too early for anything like that uh, in the protest movements, 
it is worth noting that we can't say yet that this is a disconnected, only nationally specific set of movements, but could quite possibly be seen as uh, another region-wide upheaval in a region that's been full of them. I would also actually go even farther and say that, you know, especially now with social media, protests far beyond the region. So, you know, the protests in Hong Kong, um, the tactics that the protesters have been using in Hong Kong uh, have now started showing up in the protests in Chile, which is on the other side of the world. Oh, that's remarkable. So, so it's not even just the fact that protests are happening that is contagious, but people share and, and learn things, even if they're not actively in contact with each other. They learn, oh, this worked well for the Hong Kong protesters. This is a good thing you can do. This is effective. This is effective against tear gas. And they adopt those tactics. And so even, I think, more broadly, we're seeing this kind of round of protests wave kind of across the, the world in countries that are, you know, the, the situation in Hong Kong is vastly different than the situation in Chile, which is vastly different than the situation in Egypt. And yet we're still seeing a lot of similar tactics. So I think that's really fascinating. And even at a 30,000 foot level, I mean, I've, I've seen reports just the, the there's been an explosion an absolute explosion in the amount of protests. And, and that's been social media. That's been people learning from each other. And and part of it is because it works, is that this kind of resistance does seem to produce results. It also is satisfying and it is an outlet. And so we are going to see these kinds of protests erupt, even for, for things big and small. It's just the way of the world now. Uh, so are they linked? They are linked in, in the macro sense of protests are good to do. They, they, they show grievance. They, they produce the results once in a while. But also there are some actual intricacies and, and idiosyncrasies among them. Uh, but expect protests forever. And what bothers me, and this goes to a point Jen made, is yep, protesters are learning from each other and getting better at protesting, which on the end is good. The other sense of this is that those repressing are getting better at it too and getting more sophisticated in the way they do so. And so we're getting into that Batman-Joker problem that you alluded to before the break. I was really hoping to say we could end this on a rare happy note for Worldly, but Alex has just complicated my ends. Nonetheless, we have to leave y'all. I want to thank our producers and our engineers who, as always, do excellent work on the show. And I want to encourage you to rate, subscribe, and review Worldly on whichever platform you get your podcast. Thanks a lot, y'all. See you later. What does it take to be an entrepreneur, and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Property Podcast, and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the Future of Entrepreneurship, a PropG Pod special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the PropG Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.